Hello and welcome to another episode of the Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. Today I'm talking with cardiac nurse and exercise coach, Angela Hartley, and she's the founder of the Healthy Hearties Group. So welcome, Angela. Thank you, Paul. Thanks for having me. That's no problem. Um, Could you please briefly tell me about yourself? Sure. So... Um, I, as Paul was saying, I um, run a group called Healthy Hearties, but my background is as a cardiac nurse, um, and I did my training in Australia, so in an, a, a hospital in Queensland, on the cardiac wards, um, working with all sorts of um, variety of heart patients. Um, I did a little stint in A&E um, in Australia, and then when I moved to the UK, I moved to the the Royal Brompton Hospital, where I worked on the cardiac wards there. Um, I did some time in intensive care, so when people woke up from their heart um, operation, um, and then I moved into um, a private cardiac rehab clinic on Harley Street. So I did a few years there, and then I had my babies, who are still only little, only two and four, so I decided to set it up myself to fit in um, much better with my um, kids. So I see um, people face to face for private cardiac rehab, and I um, also run the Healthy Hearties group. So I do coach people online, um, but I, I set up the Healthy Hearties group really so that it was a space for people to um, talk about exercise after um, a heart problem. Um, everyone in the group has a slightly different story. So some people have had a cardiac arrest. Some people have um, had pacemakers. Some people have got ICDs. Other people have heart failure, um, have had a heart attack or a bypass. Um, so everyone's really different, and, it, and it's really enjoyable to see that people are learning about exercise, getting their confidence back to do things, Um so, yeah, so that's why I set it up. And, um, yeah, I really enjoy running that. And it was great to come across um, your group, Paul, um, which is um, for cardiac arrest survivors. Um, and it's great to, you know, be part of that as well. Yeah, I believe there's a, a number of the cardiac arrest survivors that are in SCA UK in your group as well, because occasionally I see them commenting and uh, making Faye, Faye in particular comments quite a lot. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's done really, really well. Um, and she's yeah, been brilliant. And I see she does lots of hard work keeping all the groups active as well. So yeah, big, big thanks to people like her um, who help out with running the groups. Because as you know, it's, it's a bit of work. Um, Got to keep the troublemakers out as well. <laughs> you get some random requests from random people. Um, but yeah, no, it's been really great to see, you know, both groups and there's there's a lot of Facebook groups out there. Um, and I think the medical profession's been a little bit slow to recommend things like this, um, like your group and my group. And even now, um, I work in a private hospital in London um, about two or three times a month. Um, and even now, there's that hesitation for me to, to recommend Facebook because I know the doctor's aren't that keen I don't know what they're scared of um so it's interesting um that um 
the doctors aren't telling all their patients about it because in theory there should be, you know, every single person in the UK should be finding us because um, they're absolutely brilliant, um, these support groups, because the face-to-face groups don't exist anymore. You say they don't exist. Is that is that from your personal experience or is that There's just something- not the availability anymore where um, you can attend a group or a meeting or um, cardiac rehab, sometimes not available or you're not entitled to it. Um, so, the, so a lot of people are sent home with not a lot of information and not a lot of support. Um, so the Facebook groups, I think, have been you know, really life-changing for a lot of people in particular who've had a cardiac arrest who feel really alone. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. Um, you know, the, you, I think you're right that the NHS has been a little bit slow on the, the digital uh, foot, as it were, and that there's a lot of um, ground to be caught up, really, to utilise, not necessarily just Facebook, but uh, some of the other social media platforms and uh, getting information out to people and, and connecting people. I think that's one of the sort of biggest things that the um, SCA UK group does is it connects people and because in particular cardiac arrest survivors are still quite few in numbers. Actually finding someone who's had a similar set of circumstances to yourself is quite quite rare. So actually to have a group where you've got uh, over 1,200 that there is now, um, there's a good chance that someone's going to have some areas of uh, experience that you you perhaps would would like to talk about or um, uh, just share. Uh, and I suspect that's probably similar with your group as well, because that's I think that's coming up to a thousand people now, isn't it? Yes, um, yeah, I think it's about nine nine hundred or so. Um, yeah, it's been great to see people you know make friends and and share their own stories I know a lot of people sit back and they just read it um and they don't um feel like they need to um write their own story because they like learning from others so you know everyone uses the the support groups in a different way um and you know some people are on it every day other people dip in and out um and that's been you know it's really good to see you know, people build their confidence. I think some some of the hesitation on the medical side is they they get they get a bit afraid of Doctor Google, which we're all guilty of. Which I don't think is as big a problem as they seem, because I feel like knowledge is power, and the more knowledge you can have, you know, the better, really. And yes, if you if you Google things, sometimes obviously random things come up and that aren't always you know relevant or true and you can scare yourself silly on on google but um they shouldn't be afraid of support groups like ours who you know i think we're all adults we all know not to take someone else's story as you know the same thing would happen to us so i think it's underestimated how helpful these um you know online support groups can be uh, and they should be encouraging more people to join. Absolutely, yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think with the, uh, I think when the um, I had my cardiac arrest and I went to Doctor Google, I probably did scare myself silly about all the the things that um, could possibly happen to me, and you know, was I going to survive the year and all of that sort of stuff? Because you can you can come across some scary reports, and there's a lot of 
there's a lot of information out there, but it's not always aimed at the patient. And if you delve a little bit too deep, you can, as I say, scare yourself quite silly sometimes. But yeah. I think with a bit of uh, time and experience that I've got now, I think um, you learn to sort of filter it a little bit and understand it a little bit and uh, apply it to your own scenario. Because for for something like a cardiac arrest, it can happen to anyone of any age, but there's there's so many reasons why it can actually happen, and they're they're all totally different. And you know, some for some people who perhaps coming to the end of their life uh, or have got a serious illness or disease, the cardiac arrest is just something that's going to happen in time. Well, eventually, all of us are going to die from a probably a cardiac arrest. So, but um, I'm sort of rambling on a little bit there. No, no, I get what I get what you mean. It's um... Yeah, we all know not to to take everything as as golden, and um, you know everyone's got a different background and different medication and different treatments and different you know reason of why their cardiac arrest happened. Um, and from my experience, um, you know because everyone's different, that's why everything does need to be so personalised. Which is why I've found with my um, work working with people one to one, we can really be specific about that. And um, you know, I can see how they're feeling that day. I can look at their heart rate. I can look at their medication. We can think about some of the side effects. We can go back to their doctor with really specific questions. Um, which sort of leads me on to everyone has a different doctor, and frustratingly, every doctor is um, slightly different in their approach, which could be amazing or could be really poor so some people walk away armed with knowledge and confidence and um you know all the information they need to to move forward and find local cardiac rehab centers and then other people walk away you know sort of frustrated that they don't feel listened to or they feel brushed aside um or they feel dismissed or they feel scared or silly about asking questions um, and so that's one of my frustrations and you know sometimes it's a bit of a lucky dip who you get and whether you get someone good you can ask questions to. So you're saying that um, you're, um, the way you work at the moment is all private. Could I just take you back to how, how you were working before you went in private in the sort of in the NHS? What was your experience of the, the cardiac and the rehab side of things there? Yeah, so at the Royal Brompton in the NHS, which is an absolutely brilliant hospital, um, and it's a heart specialist hospital. They do mostly heart and lungs there, um, and it's in central London in um, South Kensington. And so it's a brilliant hospital. And when I worked on the ward, um, it was a bit of a shock to the system in comparison to my experience in Australia just because it was a lot busier. Um, but we did a lot of um, – so I was working on the – on the ward and in HDU, um, which is a sort of step down from intensive care. So people would come to me, so my shifter might have six or seven people. One might have um, been ready to go for their surgery that day, so a bypass surgery. Um, another person might have had a pacemaker fitted because they had complete heart block um, and they'd been fainting, so they found out they needed a pacemaker. Um, another person might be post-op, so they might have had um, a valve um, repair or, or replaced. Um, so be nursing on the ward. 
Um, in the intensive care side of things, it was, um, you know, post-surgery or uh, post-cardiac arrest, whether they hadn't regained consciousness yet. Um, so they may have need to be sedated and had the support of all the machines and the, the, the drugs that we give people. Um, so the, the intensive care bit is this, probably the scariest for the family to see, but it's the most controlled environment where um, you can literally control everything. Um, and it's it's an intense period for everyone, but um, the patient's usually unaware of everything that's going on in that point because they're usually unconscious. Um, and then by the time they're sort of out of there, they're able to get out of bed and and things like that. So, so, so what sort of rehab is, is done in the hospital? Because if um, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I think there's four stages, isn't there, of, of uh, cardiac rehab? Yeah, so the stage one is um, at the bedside. So they should, most hospitals, so our hospitals um, and the one I currently work at has a sister who um, is a senior nurse and their job is to um, talk to people about cardiac rehab. So they come to your bedside, usually on about day four or five if you're if you're in hospital for a few days, um, either after a cardiac arrest um, for some people. And I'm sure we'll get onto this where not, not everyone who's had a cardiac arrest gets referred, um, which is a big bugbear. Um, but for people who've had sort of a standard procedure, so if you've had a stent, um, if you've had a bypass or a valve surgery or you've had a heart attack um, they will um, refer you to your local hospital um, in an NHS rehab setting so they call that phase one so phase one is talking about it um, talking about um, when they go home you know building back up some um, light walking and things like that um, and the physios usually help with that as well um, phase two, so usually this happens um, between one to three or four weeks after you go home. And again, this differs from hospital to hospital, but you get a phone call and that's called phase two where they see how you're getting on, um, talk through how you are, um, talk through how your walking's been going, um, you know, how your, your pain is, um, things like that. Um, phase three is the face-to-face -face group setting. So usually that happens after about six weeks. Um, and again, this really differs from hospital to hospital. So some are six weeks long and you go once a week. Some are 12 weeks long and you go once a week. Some are twice a week. Some are four weeks. Um, but that's the group setting. So you usually have an hour of exercise where they do a warm up and then you have a circuit based scenario. Um, everyone can work at a slightly different level. Um, and they have a nurse and an exercise specialist monitoring you. And then the second half of it, so maybe a half an hour or an hour afterwards, they have a guest speaker. And they might talk about diet or depression or medications. Um, and your family members are welcome to come to that for most of them. Mm -hmm. And then the phase four is um, in the community. So you get referred on to a, a group setting. So that might be in your local gym um, where you, again, is in a group setting and sort of like an aerobics class, but for people with a heart problem. So it's a much easier level. 
they might do the same sort of circuits you did in the hospital setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are, the, are these um, sort of tailored to the individuals? Because I do do hear about, well, in, I don't know if you've seen in the group, there's quite a wide range of um, abilities abilities, and, yeah. and people. And we get a lot of, you know, people who would consider themselves previously very fit before yeah. having their cardiac arrest. And, you know, we've got quite a few people who've had a cardiac arrest whilst they were doing a race, you know, mm. whether that be a 5K or a marathon or whatever. I'd say it's aimed at the low to mid end of um, fitness. And so... Uh, you would have, say, some people would do, do the exercises seated, some would do it standing, some might not be able to do it at all because they're they're a little bit weaker. Um, you know, they have bikes and treadmills at different centres. So, you know, for the, the few minutes that you're on that circuit, the fitter people would obviously be able to do more than the um, less able people. So it's sort of tailored to your ability within that environment so i'd say if you were very fit before you would probably find it um on the easier side Uh, but again a lot of it is getting your confidence back and so people who were previously very fit often find it's a confidence boost because they do find it easier um so yeah i I guess it's sort of tailored Uh um, as much as they can do with you know one nurse and one exercise coach so would those people, I think you said, you mentioned that they're monitored, what sort of um, monitoring are people under while they're doing these exercises? Sometimes they wear a heart rate monitor and so they just come around and ask you to tell you what their heart rate is um, and sometimes they wear um, the full ECG with the box um, if they've had a rhythm problem. Um, so for cardiac arrest they should be. Um, doing that where they would look on the the monitor for any um, issues you know during that exercise Uh for myself personally I use a heart rate monitor um, and I just do a pre-assessment of their rhythm so obviously finding out you know what their background is finding out what their resting rhythm is so that I know what to what to look out for because I like to relate it to real life because you're not going to go home with an ECG monitor. So when you're walking to the end of the street, you're not going to be wearing that ECG monitor. Um, And that is still exercise. So Mm -hmm. I tend to just use your heart rate. And the reason I like using your heart rate is because that is a good way of um, measuring how hard you're working. Um, And especially what I find is people tend to do more than what they um, think they're doing. So they think they're not doing a lot and they're getting exhausted, but actually they're doing quite a lot. And and a lot of the time I slow people down. So people come a bit scared to me thinking, oh, she's going to make me do all sorts of things. And I actually make them do less than what they were doing before, which sounds counterintuitive, but I would rather people be a turtle and walk for much longer than be a hare and walk for a short period but get super tired and super puffed. But why would people get um, – I, I think I'm probably a hare at times. And I think that was one of the things that I found once I left um, the hospital is that being previously relatively fit and healthy, and I, I was probably the 
I'd been doing the most walking I'd done for quite a few um, years because a friend the previous year had had a serious back um, operation and he needed to get rehab to get back walking again. So we used to go walking in the country and I used to walk a lot to get to and from work and I would walk at lunchtime. So I was, I was probably doing about six or seven miles a day uh, plus longer walks at the weekend. And then after I came out of hospital, and I, as I said, I didn't get any rehab um, from my hospital. So I was a little bit lost as to what I should actually do. And just for me, walking to the end of the street was totally exhausting. And that was just a you know a couple of hundred meters. Mm. But but I felt, you know, I, I was previously fit and healthy. I should try and get back to what I was doing. And so I was finding that I was very much yo-yoing in that I had go out and do a walk for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then I'll come back and I'll be totally exhausted and um, just have to have, have, a, have a sleep for a couple of hours. Yeah. I mean, for for the energy and the um, uh, yeah, feeling knackered after doing a short bit, especially when you're used to doing a lot, I've, um, my experience has been, that you need to give yourself time to recover, first of all, because if you imagine your heart going through um, a a trauma, which it had done, um, that does need time to recover in itself. So a lot of your energy is used up by the body, repairing that heart and repairing um, any area of the heart that may have been damaged during that time. Um, also the energy required to repair things like your your brain if it had lost any oxygen for any period of time um you know if any ribs were damaged during cpr so a lot of the time your body's tired just doing those um, normal processes and um, just like you know repairing and and keeping you alive um, and then what a lot of people do is they set off quite fast at their normal walking speed um, so you imagine the classic runner, pop their shoes on, walk, you know, out the door and start running. Um, not saying that people with a heart problem do this, but it's the same sort of concept um, where um, go off too fast, hit a bit of a wall and feel like they have to stop and rest. Um, so I like to take it back to the beginning and say, so at what point, do you get tired? Okay, if you got tired at 20 minutes, let's try five minutes. Let's go back to make it too easy for you. And so at five minutes, did that wipe you out for the rest of the day? And you say, oh, I was still tired, but I wasn't wiped out. Okay, let's stick at five minutes for another couple of weeks. And then after a couple of weeks, let's try 10 minutes. Does that wipe you out? Okay, that, that seemed okay. And so we build it back up. You imagine your fitness and your energy levels being like a pyramid. And we want to make that base of the pyramid really, really strong before we add anything on top. Um, So the base of that pyramid is your easy work. So that is your light walking, which is something you can easily talk um, to the person next to you at. You're not huffing and puffing. You're not really sweating. You're not um, you're not really pushing it. You're kind of strolling along like you're walking around the supermarket. You know, you're not really at going at speed. Um, and that's the base of your fitness pyramid. 
And so what I try and get people to work on is building that first before they add that classic exercise, which is the, you know, getting a little bit breathless, huffing and puffing, sweating a bit, pushing it past that point where they're comfortable. Um, So does that, that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, And you mentioned about using a a heart rate monitor. Mm -hmm. Can you use that to actually help you gauge your level of, uh, yeah, um, how much you're exerting effort you're exerting and with, Exactly. So so when you wear the heart rate monitor, if you put it on right now, we're just sitting here. We are talking, so we're working a little bit harder than doing nothing. But our resting heart rate is probably, you know, around the 70 to 80 mark because we're sitting down, not doing a lot. As soon as you stand up, that heart has to pump a little bit harder to get the blood to the legs because they're further away now. Um, so it might be 75 to, to 85. Um, then you might walk around the room, it might go up to 80. So as you can see, each little bit of extra effort requires the heart rate to go up. If you walk out that door right now and your heart rate's 70, for instance, um, and we walk out that door and walk to the end of the street in a brisk stroll, you're going to go from 70 to 100, 110 maybe quite quickly. So I'm just using round numbers to give you a bit of an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when the heart starts to, to sort of go, hmm, hang on, this is hard work. Um, I'm going to start huffing and puffing because I need that extra blood supply to those legs that are suddenly walking quite fast. And the lungs are going to require more to pump more oxygen to those leg muscles um, and to the heart muscle itself. So by jumping up that quickly – is like going from gear one in your car to gear four in your car without going through two and three. So you kind of have that spluttering going on where it's like it's not quite ready to go that fast. Mm-hmm. Um, to work out what your heart rate should be at each level and what you should be exercising at, you can do it in a couple of ways. The traditional um, method is to do 220 minus your age, and I can do a little um, – post on this so that you don't have to you know write it down right now um and so let's say you're 60 so 220 minus 60 is 160 and that would be called your maximum heart rate so in theory the most the fastest your heart rate could get to is 160 to do that base building exercise it's around 60 percent of that maximum heart rate so you would work out 60% of 160, which is, I'm going to cheat, use my calculator, 96. So that would mean if you were doing a slow to moderate exercise, you'd want your heart rate around 96. Um, and so you could wear a heart rate monitor and monitor that. And if it goes above that, you know that you're going to run out of steam more quickly. Because the higher up your heart rate goes, the more oxygen it's requiring. So the heart itself requires oxygen. We often forget about the heart as a muscle. And um, we we forget that if you did 100 bicep curls up and down with a heavy weight, your bicep would hurt. So we forget that the heart is a muscle too, and it requires oxygen as well. So the harder that heart muscle has to work, the more oxygen it requires. 
So if you can keep your heart rate lower, you can do things for much longer. Um, that's using round numbers. Obviously, on a case-to-case -case basis, each person's heart rate is going to be slightly different. Um, the other complication with heart rate is that if you're on a beta blocker, which a lot of people are, so things like bisoprolol, your heart rate can be 10 to 20 beats lower than um, your heart rate would normally be during exercise. So you, you might only be able to get to 86, for instance, if you were age 60 um, and we were working at 60% of your maximum, your heart rate might only get to 86 because of that beta blocker. The beta blocker stops your heart rate from going higher, which is why a lot of people find exercise quite hard is because the beta blocker is stopping you getting to that higher level. Yeah, I can totally uh, go go with that because I, I find exercise hard. And as I say, I used to do it a lot, but that was, that was a really great explanation. Thank, thanks for that, Angela. That's um, okay. Um, on on the heart rate monitors, you you see them everywhere these days. I mean, have you got any particular recommendations for um, types? Oh, I spent or hours looking for a good one, you know, because I used to, and I'm wearing the watch right now. I don't wear the the heart rate strap, but I really love my old school Polar, which is a Polar FT um, four FT seven, and um, for some reason, Polar have gone all high tech and um, they use all the wrist-based ones now, and they don't promote the the heart rate strap as much anymore. But what I found is as soon as you get quite sweaty, the wrist-based ones aren't as accurate. Um, I found the Apple Watch to be quite accurate. Um, I don't have one myself, but um, a few clients have that, and that does seem to be accurate. The Fitbits are a bit hit and miss with the wrist-based measurement. Um, they seem to be quite good at reading a resting heart rate, but not an exercise heart rate. Um, so in answer, I don't have the perfect one yet. Um, that's not super expensive because the expensive ones like the um, Garmin's are really great if you're willing to spend a bit more money to have, you know, a, a super expensive GPS watch so it can tell you how far you ran and what your time was. Um, but I haven't quite found the perfect lower end heart rate monitor. I've just been trialing one called Wahoo. Have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've got a Wahoo heart rate. Yeah, monitor. and I quite like that. And um, the only issue with that is you have to look at your phone, so you can't look at your wrist um, to see your heart rate. So as long as you're, you know, up to speed with using a phone and you're happy to carry it around and look at it, mm -hmm. um, that one seems to be quite accurate. But then. I don't know if you can use that on a bike. You'd have to have a pretty good. Yeah, Wahoo have a uh, a bike computer, if you like, and that has a display that will show your heart okay. rate monitor. Yeah, because they have a number of uh, other little devices that you can connect. Oh, to bikes. okay, so it won't fall off your bike if you clip it on. Exactly. Oh, but that would they, be they, good. They have a thing for like the cadence as well on on. Oh, your that bike would be and... good. So, and that's a, that's at the cheaper end. So, I, I quite like the monitor for that one. I mean, my, my experience is very similar to what you've just been saying. My, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I used to run, um, and my wife was a very good runner uh, back in the day. And she, Polo, one of the sort of leading, or well, probably one of the only makes back then, um, 
and they 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 were very accurate using the the chest strap. But uh, I know not everyone likes a, having a chest strap, and it's a, it is a little bit inconvenient at times. Yeah. Um, but it's a shame that they they're going away from that now. But uh, I guess they are still quite expensive. Their pieces of kit. Um, I think it's maybe worth putting a, a post in the group to see what people's experience are with the wrist ones and how accurate they are. I've just found if I've got someone with a um, wrist-based one and I put the strap on them as well, um, they're, they're at least 15 to 20 beats out at the higher end of heart yeah. rate. I, I would agree with that. I've, I've got a, a Fitbit one, which I, I really like, and I think you're right. It gives a very good... Um, resting heart rate and i think that's reasonably accurate um and it was quite interesting because i when i was um i had mine before i started taking uh, a beta blocker and what you said about dropping the heart rate between 10 and 20 that it was almost exactly that i i've got a chart which i printed in put into the group a long time ago when i started taking it and pretty much every day that i started uh building up the bisoprolol I could see my heart rate or well, my resting heart rate drop by one beat per day. It was almost mm. like. Uh, it, and so that's it was its quite... job to do, which is, you know, absolutely brilliant. It's a brilliant drug. Well, it is, yes, but a lot of people moan because it makes them f- fatigued and tired. And I, I'm in that uh, bucket <laughs> or group of people who, who do complain about that, which we can perhaps talk about a little bit more about fatigue and um yeah. So, some other things. But there were some other things that I was going to okay. talk about first. Um, well, we, we sort of touched on it about how to, if you go back to cardiac rehab, or even if you don't, how, how do you get your confidence back if you were someone who is relatively fit and healthy? What what are good strategies or ways of um, getting feeling confident about what you're doing is right and uh, being able to go out you know if you're a run go running again because mm. I, I remember going to a uh a conference a cardiac arrest conference and there was one chap there and he's in the group i won't mention him but he, he was quite upset or distraught that it was it was only a couple of months after his arrest and he had it was literally at the end of a race and he was seriously concerned that he was never going to be able to run mm. again or run and run with his uh son which he, yeah. he found very enjoyable um, I guess the key thing is to be armed with the right information is the f- number one thing. So finding out why the cardiac arrest happened, um, which is often for some people, which is you know obviously frustrating, is sometimes there isn't an answer um, of why it happened. But in particular, if there is an underlying um, rhythm problem, so finding out about that, um, so is there any reversible causes of that? So was it because of a, an illness? Was it because of um, a virus? Was it because of, um, you know, something that was going on, like, um, for instance, you know, really high potassium or anything that was reversible so that you know that that risk of it happening again is much lower? So if you did have a virus, for instance, you know that that has now been treated and, um, is at lower risk. Um, is there an underlying cardiomyopathy? So um, each cardiomyopathy is is slightly different and is caused by slightly different things. Um, some of the genetic ones um, 
which gradually worsen over the years, they do tell you not to exercise. So it's important to have that information. Um, there is, yeah, a, a few of the cardiomyopathies where you should try and see a genetic specialist um, who specializes in cardiomyopathy where they can tell you, is it safe for me to exercise? And for some of them, uh, that answer is yes. And then you can work out together with your doctor, well, is there a particular level I can exercise to? Um, so you might be able to walk but not run or you might be able to run but not sprint. Um, and for other, um, unfortunately, some of the cardiomyopathies, they say if you continue to exercise, that um, heart muscle will continue to thicken and that will worsen the cardiomyopathy. So I guess information is really key to understand what, what condition do I have and is that um, dangerous for exercise? Um, if it was caused by a rhythm problem, um, do they recommend you having an ICD? Do they recommend a particular heart rate limit? So if you do have an ICD, they are set to read um, ventricular um, fibrillation or tachycardia at a certain heart rate, um, which would trigger it to fire off. So usually that's at quite a high level, like 180, 170. Um, so finding out that information is really key if you do have an ICD. So at what level will that ICD fire off at? Because what you don't want to happen is being going for a sprint finish and your heart rate's quite high and that ICD reading it incorrectly as a, um, as a dangerous rhythm and giving you a shock. Um, I, I guess also having the reassurance if you do have an ICD that if anything was to happen – you do have that ICD there to give you a shock. Um, the chances of it happening are very low, um, but it's finding out, you know, that information yeah, as much as you can. Um, for other people, if they have no known cause, they, um, you know, it's, it's tricky to get your confidence back when you don't know why it happened. But what I would say is you want to try and, you know, live your life and get on with your life as much as you can. And if exercise is an important part of that, then um, you shouldn't let it stop you. And um, what I would always say is just be, you know, sensible with telling people where you are, you know, maybe go going for a run with someone um, who knows you, wearing an ID bracelet, things like that, just to give you the reassurance that if anything did happen, someone would know what was happening. Um risk of that happening for you know the general population is is very low um, and for people who are being currently treated in some ways you're at a lower risk than people who don't know that they have an underlying heart problem indeed indeed so would, would you recommend uh, say someone likes running would the, to go to a gym and maybe run on a treadmill first to get a bit of confidence and a the sort of have the peace of mind that there's always going to be people around. That would be a great idea to start with and to, to rebuild your confidence. Um, and same if you're a cyclist, maybe restarting on in, on a gym bike um, or, or going out in a group um, so that you're, yeah, you're with other people who know you um, so you're not alone. That would be good. And then once you've got your confidence back, um, yeah, going going out by yourself is 
um, always going to be something that runners want to do. So I would never tell people to not do that. Um, and I guess it's it's realizing that the risk of something happening is very low, particularly if you have been treated. Um, so, for instance, if your underlying cause was a heart attack um, and they've now revascularized you through stents or a bypass surgery, um, the risk of that happening, again, is very low. Um, or like I was saying, if they've treated any other underlying cause or they've put you on a beta blocker, um, you know, the risk of that cardiac arrest happening is is much lower. Um, and you and some people forget that everyday life, we are exercising all day. You know, every time you sit on the toilet, you're doing a, a squat. Every time you walk up the stairs, you're doing some cardio. Um, so we are exercising much more than we think. And you can have confidence knowing that, oh, well, I walked around Tesco today. I actually did some exercise because people don't give themselves credit for things like that because they don't go to the gym. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I give people the reassurance that you are doing things all day long that you don't even realize. Um, that's one of the good things that having a Fitbit uh, can sort of reinforce is if you're wearing it all the time, you can actually see how much activity you are or aren't doing uh, without even going to, like you say, a gym or, or doing any particular exercise. Yeah, exactly. And building on it gradually. So like I was saying about that base of the pyramid, so if you're – whether you've never exercised in your life or whether you're a runner, you should always start back at that base. So the runner should be starting with the walking and building up gradually, so five minutes at a time. And even if you do five minutes and you think, gosh, the world's ended, I won't be able to run again, you'll look back in three months' time and you'll be back to, you know, a certain level. Um, but it's that gradual building it back up. And for people who've never exercised, the same principle applies, where you start with, you know, a five-minute walk. Before you know it, in three months' time, you're up to, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes. Um, and for runners, once they get to, you know, an hour of walking, then they can go back to the basics of maybe one minute slow jog, one minute walk, one minute slow jog, one minute walk, and, and build it back up that way. Um, and then you get your confidence um, that way by saying, oh, I can do two minutes jog. Now I'm doing five minutes jogging. Now I'm doing 10 minutes um, and, and rebuild it that way really slowly and gradually. Um, to give you that reassurance that you're doing it in a safe way. I mean, one of the things, well, for people, as you said, who, who haven't done exercise before, walking is uh, a, a great exercise in itself. You don't really have to sort of progress on to doing uh, running or, or something more energetic, do you? No, and I think one of the realisations that I've come to, because I am a gym person, um, and I've realized that a lot of people aren't. <laughs> um, and by making people go to the gym actually is counterintuitive because they, if they don't enjoy it, then they're not going to stick to it and they're not going to get the benefit of, of it because they're going to sort of resent it. So I've, I've gone back to basics and actually now I, I tell a lot of people just to walk um, and then we, we do a few of the other exercises at home like while you're brushing your teeth you can do a few squats and things um because there's no point in me writing a, a, a gym program for someone who hates it and my mum is the, and I'm sure my mum won't be won't mind me 
saying this, using her as the example, is um, I wrote a lovely program for her and I think she tried it once for three minutes <laughs> because she was <laughs> like, well, I've never been to the gym. I hate going to the gym. I feel like everyone's looking at me. Um, I feel like everyone's making funny noises and I feel like an idiot because I don't know what I'm doing. So she just was completely put off and never went back. Um, and some people can overcome that. Some people can say, do you know what? Who cares what the other people are doing? Um, as a side note, people are only looking at themselves. Don't worry. No one's looking at you thinking you're doing it wrong. Um, all the people who are looking in the mirror are looking at themselves. <laughs> um, don't worry too much. And everyone in, in, in your shoes is also worried about what other people think. So no one's actually worrying about anyone else. Um, but, yeah, I, I got sidetracked. But the key thing is that my mum was not doing that, so she ended up doing nothing. And I said, okay, well, why don't we start with a 10-minute walk? She said, oh, brilliant. Okay, this week, let's do 20. Let's do 30. And now she's doing about an hour with some hills included now to make it a little bit harder. Um, and she loves that. And and that means that she's actually sticking to it now. Well, that, and that's one of the key things, really, isn't it? Sticking to doing these, uh, getting consistency in there. Yeah, exactly. And she doesn't need to be able to have, you know, the, the leanest of muscles. And it's not a priority for her at the moment to to be you know have the strongest biceps so it's you know sometimes we have to change um things based on what people actually want rather than what i think they need <laughs> mm -hmm. which um you know all the squats and things are great because if you have stronger leg muscles um and you you build a little bit of leg strength your body your muscles are then more efficient at getting oxygen from the blood and so whilst you think, oh, I don't need to be stronger to run, if you have stronger legs, the walking becomes easier. So it's a bit of a positive cycle once we start to look at, well, okay, squats seem a little bit silly and what's the point of doing that? Um, but actually then the walking becomes better. Uh-huh. Well, that totally makes sense. And I guess there's, there's lots of uh, ways of achieving sort of stronger muscles over rather than just doing your, your plain uh, exercises in the gym, aren't there? There's, for yeah. example, your, your yoga and your Pilates, which perhaps are a little bit more gentle for some people. Yeah, I mean, there's a lady down the road from me in East Molsey who does chair-based yoga um, for people who are real beginners or they might have back or knee problems um, who think, gosh, how, you know, if you have a heart problem, there's certain poses like, you know, standing on your head, for instance, is not going to be great for you, uh, which I can't do anyway. But, um, yeah, so ha finding an adapted yoga class is really good because it has the mental health benefits as well, um, which we often, you know, forget about for exercise. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, just I find, and I'm sure a lot of people do find, just getting out into the fresh air is a real boost for for your overall feeling. And I guess that goes in hand in hand with mindfulness as well, which is sort of... Yeah, exactly. Yoga, walking's good for that. Um, listening to mindfulness tapes. Um, tai Chi, I was going to say, um, if you can find a Tai Chi class, because that's very mindful um, and it's good for your balance as well. Um, the Pilates is good. Pilates is, um, can be quite advanced. So you just have to make sure that the person taking the class knows that you're a beginner and you won't be able to do, 
um, certain things um, and same for the yoga. Um, with the, if you do have an ICD, what I generally tell people when um, I'm working with them at the hospital is for four to six weeks, you won't be able to do any overhead work with your arm. So, um, you know, even stretching and things, you wouldn't be able to do that with your with your arm. Um, so you would have to avoid um, things like weights or yoga for the four to six weeks. Um, you wouldn't be able to do any heavy lifting for four to six weeks. But after that, um, because what the reason for that is um, the risk of dislodging those wires that they've put in um, and dislodging um, dislodging anything, um, so moving the box or anything. So that's why we get you to do that resting for four to six weeks. You can still walk during that period um, and do, you know, leg exercises. But then after that six-week period, you are safe to do that upper body work. So getting back to stretching and swimming and all of those things is absolutely safe. Um, to do when you have an ICD. I mean, if apart from that uh, initial period, is there any other sort of activities or sports you would say uh, advise people who've got an ICD or have had a cardiac arrest not to do? So the the um, for the ICD, it's contact sports. So avoiding things that you know where you might get tackled um, and dislodge or, or you know move that box around. Um, so, you know, like full contact rugby, usually they tend to tell you to avoid that. Um, I mean, everything in, is in theory safe. Like I would say off-piste skiing, but if you're a really good skier, it's probably not dangerous at all. But if it was me, I'd be rolling down the hill. So, um, <laughs> it just depends on, you know, your level of safety, um, for skiing and things like that. But, um, in theory, from a box point of view, act, every activity um, is safe, but you don't want to be falling over and knocking it. So, you know, horse riding is is great, but horse racing, maybe not. So, um, yeah, it just depends on how dangerous that particular activity is or whether you're at risk of, you know, knocking the actual site. Uh -huh. um, but from a heart rate point of view, again, it goes back to what I was saying um before about have you been given an upper limit so when you have the box um checked they should be able to tell you what the settings are and um, so if you're doing an activity that puts your heart rate up to that level then obviously you would have to avoid that level of vigorous activity so you might you might be able to jog slowly but you might not be able to sprint um, because it puts your heart rate up too high so again that's the sort of information you would need from the person checking your icd if if um you get a, an icd put in and you are a, a sporty person can you ask them to sort of take that into consideration or do they take that into consideration when setting their limits i think they do i think they would make it slightly less sensitive so because um the settings are based on um reading your your electrical conduction and so it's sensing for when that electrical conduction goes wrong. And obviously that has to be quite sensitive because otherwise it won't realise when things are going wrong. But if it's too sensitive, 
and you're running, it will read that incorrectly as a um, as a, a, a tachycardia, ventricular ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation, and so it will fire off because it will think, oh, the heart rate's too high, uh, and fire off. And so some people have had an inappropriate shock um, where the heart rate actually wasn't in a dangerous, um, it wasn't a dangerous arrhythmia, but it still shocked you. And that was an inappropriate shock. And that's because the settings were too sensitive. So um, for people who are yeah, exercising at a high level, they may make it less sensitive. But it's something that, again, depends on what sort of underlying rhythm you're in as well and whether it's safe to do that. So uh, a discussion with your physician, really, if, you've, if you want to con- continue participating in those sort of sports and activities. Absolutely. So discuss it with the, the physician and with the cardiac physiologist. So the people doing the um, testing on the ICD are physiologists. So if you have had a shock, um, you can go in and they should be able to do that a reading and a printout of what rhythm you were in when you had that shock. And so they'll be able to see, was that an appropriate shock? And if you are having a appropriate shocks, so you are going into that dangerous rhythm where you need a shock, then you, and if it's happening every time you ran 10 kilometers, for instance, then yes, definitely don't run that distance and don't run to that heart rate. Um, so it's, so it's being armed with that information um as well it comes back to what you said earlier about having information to hand yeah exactly which unfortunately a lot of people don't like they get a bit left out in the dark um you know so hopefully you do have a doctor that you know can spend a little bit of time explaining what's happened to you why did it happen what are the chances of it happening again and what can i do to prevent it happening again they're the sort of questions you need to be asking Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit earlier about um, where you exercise too much and you fatigue your your body too much. Essentially, can you um, give me other any other ideas apart from sort of going a little bit slower about uh, fatigue and how we can sort of um, circumvent it or yeah. reduce its effect? So, I like to treat um, your body as a bit of a, a, a tank in a car. And you imagine at the start of the day, it should be 100% full. So unfortunately, when you have a heart condition, um, you're already starting it a little bit um, lower than than 100% full. Because like I was saying before, your body's using a bit of extra energy um, to work that heart a little bit harder. um, Or you might be on medications, which, you know, your body has to deal with that sort of zap the energy a little bit. Um, So we've got to be careful with expending that energy and and draining that energy tank to zero because then you won't have enough energy to do your normal everyday life. So if you write down all the things that require your energy throughout the day, it's not just exercise. There's, you know, cooking dinner, eating dinner, you know, getting dressed, showering, going to work, going shopping, uh, having a conversation, having an argument with your kids, you know, like all of those things take energy, right? So before you've even started exercise, you're you're slowly depleting that energy tank throughout the day. So what I would say is keep a little track on when is your energy at its best. And that is the time, ideally, you would be doing some exercise. 
obviously that's tricky if you if you're back at work and and things um but say your energy is at its best at 11 a.m um that would be the ideal time to to go out for you know your first walk and start building up the time that you're doing that um in terms of the um the energy tank fuel tanks going down we've got to be um really mindful of what we're putting in to that tank and a lot of people um forget that because we're we're constantly depleting it um you know we might be eating not great that depletes it so your body has to get rid of all that rubbish food um if you eat lots of sugar that can zap some of your energy as well even though in the short term it gives you a little boost um, that zaps things like your magnesium. So again, you can see all the things we, we're doing um, that zap the energy. Um, what are we actually putting into the tank? So the things that are key to put into the tank to get your energy up um, are making sure you're getting some sleep, which again is um, you know looking at your sleep hygiene. Um, are you getting to bed at the right time? So you're not, you know, when you, you're lying on the couch and you fall asleep. And then you get to bed and you can't sleep a wink. Um, you you should be listening to your body slightly earlier. So you should go to bed at that time where you're falling asleep on the couch. Um, are you, you know, in a dark room? Is it cool enough? All of those things. So making sure you're doing your best to try and um, sleep. Are you taking your tablets um, at the wrong time? So maybe try switching it. So for instance, if you take B vitamins that can keep you awake all night because it's giving you all the energy at night. Um, so just yeah, keeping a little track of a diary and where your energy is at its lowest and highest. Um, are you hydrated? So number one thing I could tell you all the diet things in the whole world and what's the perfect thing to eat and you know what all the all the magical potions and lotions. But if you're not hydrated, your energy is going to be rubbish. You're not going to be getting enough fuel in that tank. You're not going to be able to do all the things that you need to do because every single cell in your body requires water. So if you are slightly dehydrated in the least, you're not going to be very efficient. Um, so that would be my number one um, tip for anything diet related is to drink more water. The other things that you can do is putting in the right fuel to the tank. So are you eating the right foods? Um, so are you eating plenty of vegetables, which have lots of nutrients, um, lots of minerals and vitamins? Are you eating enough food? So if your appetite's quite rubbish, um, which a lot of people do suffer with, um, are you eating enough? So forcing yourself to eat little and often, like even if it's just some carrot sticks, um, you know, just something all, all throughout the day. Um, are you... Um, yeah, are you getting enough vitamins and, and minerals? So um, it, it is worth looking, and um, I'll talk briefly about vitamins just because I do recommend them for people who are struggling with energy in particular. Um, because, like I've been talking about, this lovely energy tank, we've, you know, we're sucking energy out of it, but we're not putting anything in. So things like coenzyme Q10 can make a huge difference to your energy levels. Um, it's an enzyme which our body produces itself and it's also found in a lot of meats um, and so these days we're not eating great quality meat and we've been told avoid red meat um, by lots of different things um, but what I'll tell you is we're avoiding all these things that can be good for us for other reasons 
Um, so to get coenzyme Q10, your body has to produce it. But remember, when we're repairing things, it's using a lot of energy. So it's using more coenzyme Q10 for that energy production. Um, so by replacing that with a, a tablet um, at, a, at a quite high dose, you can help to sort of recharge those batteries um, and add a bit of fuel to the tank. Um, so most people say, oh, I tried that, didn't didn't really work. But if they if they go to, you know, Boots and get the one off the counter, which is probably at a low dose, um, they might not have been taking enough of it. Um, so your cheaper brands will be about 30 milligrams of CoQ10. And I'd recommend between 100 and 300 milligrams a day. So that would be 10 tablets of those cheap ones, which you'd soon run, run out of the pot. So where would people get get uh, the higher strength brands? Um, you could just Google it and go for one that has um, has a, a good reputation. Um, I don't like to, you know, be biased towards different brands, but as long as it um, has sort of a bit of scientific research behind the company, so that they're investing into research. So things like Solga, Healthspan. Um, I use Cytoplan. So, so, yeah, there are a number of brands that are, are better than others. Um, but it's more important to have the dosage up, um, which does end up being more expensive. So you either go for a, a better brand, which has a higher dose in it, and um, which costs more, or you go for a cheaper brand, which has less dose, but you have to take more of them. So it kind of evens out, whichever whichever way you go. Um, the other um, nutrient that I recommend is magnesium, which can help people sleep, which then increases your energy um, and it increases your energy as well. So magnesium, where a lot of us are deficient in, all of our cells use it, again, for energy production, um, for muscles, um, the heart uses a lot of it. If you eat a lot of sugar, you get depleted in it. If you're really stressed, you get depleted in it. If you're you know, muscles are working super hard, like your heart, you get depleted in it. Um, the foods that contain it are things like your green leafy veg, um, your um, brown rice and quinoa and things like that. And really, really dark chocolate, like super dark, like 90, 100% dark chocolate, um, which a lot of us tend to go for the, the yummier, lower quality stuff. <laughs> um, or again, um, magnesium supplements so you can take it in three ways you can bath in it with epsom salts which is quite good for muscle relaxation as well you can spray it on um, which is magnesium chloride um, so you spray it on the skin so it bypasses your gut or you can take it in a tablet um, form um, there's a lot of different types of magnesium so the ones i recommend are magnesium glyconate and uh, magnesium taurate or magnesium citrate so it just is the it's a bit confusing but it's basically the thing that it's attached to um and you sort of build up the dosage gradually if you get diarrhea from the magnesium you've got to go down a little bit in the dose is the, the sort of rule of thumb um the last one that i'll talk about because there is like tons of things you can do um is l-carnitine which I like. It's an amino acid. Again, it's found in meat, which we're not eating as much of and in as good a quality anymore. 
Um, and your body does use a lot of it in the repair process. Um, it's a bit like the oil for the engine. So it helps in the, in the cells, mitochondria, to cr create ATP, um, which is the energy of that cell. Um, so if we don't have enough of it, there's not going to be much ATP, T, ATP production, and therefore that energy is not going to be high. Um, again, so you can find it in um, meat. Otherwise, you can um, supplement with it. Um, and there's not really a particular brand for that one that I, I recommend. There's, you know, sort of I'd have to do a little bit more research on which exact brand for that one. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem to be as much of a difference for the brands for that one. I mean, it's I, I, I actually take a couple of those anyway. Okay. I've previously uh, read and I, I saw a blog article on your website and you mentioned someone that I've seen and I've also shared, oh, some, yeah? shared some of his videos. Is that Dr. Sinatra? As, uh, no, it was... Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, it's Dr. Sinatra and uh, the, yeah, Dr. Gupta in uh, oh, York, yeah. York Cardiologist. Yes, so Dr. Gupta's the UK one, and he's brilliant. He's got lots of cool videos about um, palpitations and magnesium, so he's a good promoter of magnesium and how good it is for um, rhythms as well, so heart rhythms. If you've got any rhythm problems, it can help. Um, and then Sinatra is the American cardiologist, and he – has done a lot of research into the, he calls them his awesome foursome. So it's magnesium, um, CoQ10, L-carnitine, and D-ribose. And D-ribose is um, a sugar that's produced in the body. And, yeah, that's another one. Like I could talk for hours about all the different ones. <laughs> Maybe we should have um, another episode. Yeah, we that. could talk literally just about that. Um, but, yeah, it's worth trying one at a time. So I would start with CoQ10, um, take it for a month at a high dose, See if that makes a difference. If it does, brilliant, add the next one. If it doesn't, maybe give it a little extra time. Um, if you know, It's always worth trying, especially if you're on a statin. Um, statins deplete the production of CoQ10, so you're even worse off. Um, so definitely recommend it for that one. Um, even if you don't notice a difference, I would stay on it because it will be doing some benefit. And th these are all safe for, for heart patients or cardiac arrest survivors? Yes, so none of those have any um, contraindications for any of the heart medications. Um, yeah, so the, the ones that I mentioned. So magnesium would be the only one I'd be cautious with. Um, and the reason for that is if you have any kidney problems, uh, you just have to be um, – you'd have to talk to your kidney specialist about magnesium because it, you don't want to end up with too much magnesium um, in in the system either. So you just have to be careful if you've got kidney disease or kidney failure. Uh -huh. And there's one that we haven't sort of talked about, which is a, a sort of a, um, a having a healthy diet as well, which is something yeah. that we've talked to um, in the group about before or there was one particular person who talked about it and and it can be uh, allegedly a cause of cardiac arrest is um is potassium and um people there was one person who and one of the uh, previous uh, guests on the podcast mentioned how how she has a banana a day due to someone else talking about this have you got any thoughts about that 
Yeah, so um, it's tricky because too little potassium can cause electrical problems in the heart and too much potassium can cause electrical problems in the heart. So a balanced diet but that most of us have day-to-day, even if it's a little bit rubbish in there, um, is usually pretty steady on the potassium. It's usually not at a level high enough to cause problems. Um, if anything, people yeah, may be slightly deficient in potassium because it is in your fruit and veg, um, you know, things that are grown hydroponically year after year probably don't have that much potassium in them um so it would be tricky to find out the 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 exact perfect balance for you Um, you'd have to find out whether you have any kidney problems again because if you have too much potassium and you have kidney problems um that can be a problem for your um, rhythm so just checking um with your doctors like is there any reason you can't have a diet high in potassium. Um, one banana, it doesn't contain that much potassium. Um, you'd have to eat, I think it was something like 36 bananas a day to mm-hmm. cause potassium toxicity. Um, so, so yeah, one, one or two bananas a day isn't a problem. Coconut water is quite a good source, avocado um, as well. So just getting, you know, a bit of everything really. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank, thanks for that. I think we're probably coming towards the end of this now, especially as I know you've got to go in not too long time. Um, just wondering, as, as bearing in mind uh, the country that you come from, as Australia, mm-hmm. and um, and last week we had the the hottest day ever recorded in the UK, and I saw a few uh, people posting about how they were struggling to keep cool and that it was having uh, uh, not issues with their heart, but they were struggling a bit. Hmm. Have, you, have you got any um, tips or anything? Well, I guess people... the feeling you're not alone. <laughs> a lot of people around the country without heart problems were, were struggling. Um, part of the reason for it is that the body has to work a lot harder in the heat to expel that extra heat. And in order to do that, everything dilates so everything widens. All those arteries widen to send that hot blood towards the surface of your skin so that you can sweat and release that heat. And when you have lovely dilated arteries, everything is a little bit floppy and everything is a little bit lower. So your um, blood pressure lowers, but because we have to get that heat out, your heart rate increases a little bit. Um, and that's part of the reason why you feel a bit crummy in the heat. Um, And if you're on a beta blocker, again, you probably felt even worse because your body's trying to pump a bit harder to get that heat out and the beta blocker's trying to stop your heart rate from going up, um, which makes it a bit harder. But I guess my tips for the heat are always just stay cool, don't do too much, don't, you know, stress that you're not doing your exercise that day, Um, don't worry that you're having a day where you're you're not doing a lot. keeping the air conditioning if you can go and hang out at the supermarket um you know put a wet um, towel on the back of your neck and keep it you know cool and wet that can help to to bring your body temperature down um you can put is it ice in front of the fan or a, you know a wet washer over the the fan um don't walk in the mid you know in the in the heat of the day wait until it's you know 10 o'clock at night if you have to if you really want to go out 
Um, and just don't put pressure on yourself to, to do too much. I mean, I, I think I was lying on the um, cold tiles with the kids with uh, numerous ice creams. So <laughs> we didn't we didn't do a lot at our house because it was awful, wasn't it? And I forget what it's like to live in Brisbane, and I'm going to be reminded at Christmas time that it's like that every day for the three weeks we're going to be there. And we sit around and do not a lot because you feel knackered. Um, and so I guess over time you adapt to that when you live in a hot country like that and you start to avoid things. You know, you park in the shade, you you go walking at 5 a.m. because that's the only time of day you can do it. Um, you exercise in the pool because, it, you know, it's easier and cooler. Um, you get an air-conditioned gym to go to so you can walk on a treadmill in a gym. Um, so, yeah, I guess there's ways around it, but stay hydrated um, keep cool, eat lots of cool foods, um, and don't, yeah, don't beat yourself up for not doing a lot because that's absolutely fine and that's the right thing to do. Uh-huh. That's some good tips there. Hopefully we will have some more hot days this summer. It's, got, it's cooled off a little bit at the moment. Oh, no, but... today's perfect. That's my sort of day. Yeah. <laughs> 23 degrees or something, that's perfect. And uh, just to, to finish on, have you got any other tips for uh, people who want to get back out and to – doing exercise and activities again yeah maybe just set set a goal and um i was just reading that my um hashtag this year's one small step because it's 50 years of the moon landing and the reason i chose that is because what an amazing thing for us to have done is land on the moon and walk on it and and how he said one small step and that's what I want people to realize is if you just take one small step a day towards uh, doing something for yourself and your and your health and your body and your mind, um, then that's all you need to do. You, you don't look at it like a mountain to climb. Think of it as, you know, a series of tracks winding your way around that mountain. Um, and you don't get overwhelmed by where you are at the moment. You can get there. Set something small each week that you're going to try. It doesn't always have to be exercise related. It can be, you know, something as simple as, um, you know, going and seeing a friend who you've been putting off because you know that they're exhausting because they talk too much. <laughs> We've all got a friend like that. Because going there and you and you coming back, you might get invigorated by seeing that person because you think, oh, brilliant, I did that. Um, one of my ladies had avoided her girl's, um, dinner where you know once every six months they got together and it had actually been two years because she'd missed three or four of them um, and she was worried that she'd be too exhausted she wouldn't be able to contribute enough um, to the conversation and they said just go along and let them do the nat- nattering you know and actually she came back and she said it was fine and she didn't know what she was worried about um, and you know people have their own issues as well like I know sometimes you you put off doing activities because you're worried that other you'll let other people down. Um, don't let anyone stop you from doing anything. You know, if if they want to walk faster than you, let them let them go. Um, but yeah, just take one small step a day um, towards you know doing something that you love, or you know getting back to exercise, or walking to the end of the street, whatever it might be. Um, just just get started. I think that's a brilliant tip. Um, I wrote that down to sort of 
point that out today and I think you've raised it up and talked about it in, in many more ways than I had thought about it initially. I thought he was thinking, I was thinking uh, just in an exercise type, type way, but uh, you're right, it, it could, could encompass anything in your life really. So, yeah, absolutely. That's brilliant. You got any more? Or is, um... Um, go on to, so I'll also write, write this down. Um, if you just Google cardiac rehab phase four, there's a little, um, you click on the, um, it's called cardiac-rehabilitation.net phase four, and there's a register of all the classes in the UK. <laughs> you put in your postcode and you see what's around. And so there's, you know, within 20 miles of my house, there's, 10 different things that I could go to um, and, you know, check it out, see what time the classes are, go along and just watch it and say, oh, I could do that. Go and talk to the person after the class um, because that's a really good way of getting back to exercise as well. Are, are these people, uh, are these classes, do you have to be referred to them or can just anyone go along to them? Some of them are self-refer and some of them your GP can do it. I think you just have to do it on a case-by-case basis. There's always an email address and a, um, like a phone number. So, Okay, that's brilliant. And I'd, I'd just like to reiterate, reiterate um, your own uh, group with the Facebook Healthy Hearties. Oh, yeah, come over, say hi. So you've got uh, a, a Facebook page and a closed group as well where you can discuss anything sort of fitness and health. and yeah. Absolutely. Everyone is always welcome. And um, yeah, come over, say hi, and um, hope to see you all there. And you're, as I said, almost at a thousand members. So maybe we can get a few more. Yeah. You, you don't have to have had a cardiac arrest, do you? It's just anyone. Anyone who's interested in heart health or family members or blood pressure, everything, really. I love the, every bit of the heart. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. Ah, thank you very much for the past hour and 20 minutes of your yes time. sorry i waffled on a bit no no absolutely brilliant stuff you've uh, given us all there so thank you very much and hopefully we'll we'll talk again perhaps on some of these subjects uh, uh, in a little bit more depth and uh, uh, i hope to speak to you again soon absolutely thanks, thanks for your time thank you